how do we within ourselves be the the caretakers of our well-being even when we're in a society that is actively challenging our ability to do so and how can when we bravely and courageously make this uh, the place that we move from and uh, the values that we hold how does this have an impact of supporting other marginalized bodies to do the same thing and when we feel when we're when we're in a collective where that's happening we are strengthened and that's where i think a larger systemic change can happen from Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Agrita Dandrell, and you're listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast, which calls for revolutionary healing of deeply conscious minds in order to outgrow our broken culture of radical individualism and disconnection from community to collectively re-envision a safer, healthier and equitable world. Today I'm in conversation with Kelsey Blackwell, a certified somatic coach, writer, and teacher, committed to supporting women of colour in their journeys of confronting internalised feelings of not enoughness, reconnecting to their inherent wisdom within, and being at one with the wholeness of their beings. Kelsey believes that working towards personal and collective liberation must also bring joy, and is the standpoint of reclaiming sacred power of the body, which we further discuss in the episode as well as how women of colour can learn to retrust and follow the guidance of their bodies through unlearning colonial somatics, which inhibit us to being our most confident and true selves. If you're ready, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. When did you first have this awakening that your body is colonized and that it needs to actively be decolonized? Yes. So I would say that my body knew before my mind knew. And how that became clear to me is I spent two weeks doing an intensive of uh, improvisational movement and expression. And what led me into that space was a desire to follow what what sounded fun, what sounded like something that I would enjoy. Um, I didn't have a background in doing a lot of improvisational type things. But from that, those two weeks of every day being with other bodies and having a lot of space to tell my story, move my body, move my body alongside other bodies, dance, uh, sing, I felt freer and more alive than I can remember feeling in some time, maybe since I was a little girl. And not only did I feel more free and alive in my body, but walking in the streets of Oakland, other people who, who I didn't know would comment and say, oh, I like your dress or I like your hair or there was something about my energy or something about my presence that shifted. And I got curious, like, well, what is going on here? What is possible in this space 
of total expression that's not possible or that I haven't been able to access in other spaces. And that's where I started to see the ways in which working in, you know, a corporate job, living under patriarchy, living under white supremacy, how those systems had gotten into my body and disconnected me from those life-giving ways of being in relationship with myself and my environment. Uh, So that's kind of what sparked that inquiry for me. You're a somatic coach, and I'm sure you've heard many different stories of women of color. Is there a sort of pattern in the way in which women of color talk about their bodies, the sort of um, struggles that they have with decolonizing their bodies whilst living on colonized land? Yeah, good question. I definitely see patterns, and it was the patterns that I was seeing and working with clients that led me to create the Decolonizing the Body program. Oftentimes when clients come to me, they have an awareness that their body, they feel disconnected from their body. And that can manifest in a lot of different ways. It can show up with a sense of always feeling like you're thinking, 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 and not able to slow down. Uh, It can show up with a sense of like, oh, I feel these aches and pains in my body, but I'm not quite sure what to do with them. So I just kind of ignore them. It could also show up with a sense of like, ah, I'm feeling like something is missing. Like I, I'm not feeling like I, I'm my full, my fullest self. And I think that coming down into the body might have something to do, uh, some way of supporting me with that. And so when I started working with women of color, some of the themes that I saw were an intrinsic knowing that the body was holding wisdom, but not actually sure how to be with that or how to relate to that. So that could be, you know, when I know something, I feel tingles in my, up my spine, or I really like, I feeling a lot of activity in my gut. Like my gut is always active, but I I don't quite know what to do with that. Right. So that was one thing. Another thing that I noticed was the ways in which living under racialized capitalism and patriarchy, the ways that those systems by design disconnect us from certain aspects of what what we need to be whole and well. And some of those things were uh, difficulty making boundaries and saying no difficulty taking up space or feeling like we deserve to take up space. Challenges receiving and not feeling guilty about it, like receiving a compliment and just accepting it or receiving support and not feeling like, oh, I have to repay this in some way. Kind of a a natural deflection of our gifts and skill set, kind of a diminishing. Difficulty slowing down or feeling like we can slow down, a desire to connect with ritual and not necessarily knowing the way, a desire to do work that feels really aligned with who we are, but feeling scared or unsure if that's possible for us. And and these systems, which I call the program, 
there was sort of a multi-headed hydra, you know, this like monster that reaffirms itself any chance it gets. And so these systems, they, the interplay of them is what has led to these ways of or not, not being able to be confident and take up the space and claim our worth and claim our dignity and claim our belonging. And, and, and that is by design. And, and I wanted to name that because another thing that I see is that, man, I mean, the women I work with are so smart and we often can see the ways in which we discount ourselves or the ways in which we're not shoring up our boundaries or the ways in which we're not going after our dreams. And then rather than look at what are the systems at play and how are they living in my body and how can I unpack from that, rather than look at the larger structures that are sort of containing us, we blame ourselves. Ah, if only I could just be more disciplined. If only I just worked harder. If only I could eat better food and get more rest, right? So we blame ourselves for these challenges we have in our lives. And from working with so many women, I was able to see, ah, this isn't about any one individual's shortcoming. This is about the ways the systems that we live in have perpetuated themselves by keeping us in a diminished state. Mm. So linking back to the, the broken systems that we have, especially in Western countries or in countries that are trying to be more Western, you know, when we talk about decolonizing BIPOC bodies, particularly women of color and their bodies, we have to address the issue of racial violence, but also sexual violence. And this is something that women of color, unfortunately, experience at a very young age. The dominant culture usually feeds this idea into us that melanated bodies, they're not beautiful. We're either too hairy, we're either too big, we have hyperpigmentation, the list goes on. But at the same time, our bodies, they're exotified and they're fetishized by the white gaze. When we grow up, you know, we've had this idea that, you know, our bodies aren't beautiful, but then suddenly we'll be getting this unwanted attention. So Kelsey, how do we, as women of color, really start to desexualize our bodies to understand that we're going through this violence that we don't need to go through? We can stand up, like you said, your clients are super smart. They know exactly what is happening to themselves. But a lot of the times we don't know how to help ourselves because, again, we've been in that cycle of self-degradation, thinking that we can't do it. So how have you helped your clients to actually understand that they'd have that potential and that, yes, we are sexual beings, but we're not here to be sexualized? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, this is such a good question because it brings up the impacts of trauma, the impacts of trauma on our bodies. And when we experience a traumatic event, be that violence against our body or being sexualized and experiencing the the harm that comes from that there is a challenge to one of our fundamental needs as a human and those fundamental needs we all need to feel safe we all need to feel that we belong and that we we all need to feel that we have dignity when these acts of violence occur we lose all one or two of those things 
And the body responds immediately to take care of ourselves in that moment. So say, for example, I want to give an example that's maybe not the, the most potentially triggering for your listeners, but let's say, for example, we're walking home and we're being followed by somebody. So our safety is under threat. So our body immediately mobilizes to take care of getting safe. Maybe that's walk a little faster. You know, we call a friend, right? Our heartbeat speeds up, right? We go into that fight or flight mode. And and let's say in this example, we're able to get away from whoever is following us. And then after that, the body actually needs to complete the trauma cycle. So it needs to, the threat needs to be recognized. Oh, like if say you met a friend, oh, you were being followed. How are you? What's happening in your body? You're safe now. Okay. Like that's not happening anymore. So our nervous system can settle again, right? Then our body has that in its DNA. It's like, oh, okay. I know how, when I feel like I'm under threat, I know what to do so that I can get safe. So now anytime that is occurring, right? Anytime, anytime there's some kind of triggering event, right? Like maybe you're walking again and you feel like someone's looking at you, or maybe you feel like someone's following you, or maybe you feel like someone's, you know, sexualizing you, right? Your body is going to turn on that safety mechanism that it learned from that first incident, right? And that safety mechanism may or may not be what's actually needed in that moment, right? It may, it may be the right response or it may not be. So some of the work around how do we living inside of a society that, you know, where patriarchy exists and where women of color are over-sexualized, some of this is to look at, okay, well, what is my history around that? And what are the responses that I learned? What did, what did, how did my body learn to take care of myself when that is happening? happening? And can I feel that in my body? Can I actually feel, oh, here it is. My heart is beating. My stomach is dropped. My palms are sweating. I'm in a trauma response here. From that place, take care of including our full experience and discerning what is the appropriate response based on my present day environment. Because what can happen is we are habitually responding without having that moment of awareness to actually assess what's safe and what's not safe. And when we're in that habitual response, it feels like we can't trust our body anymore, right? It feels like, I don't know who's safe and who's not safe. I don't know. I want to go out and meet new people, but... I'm afraid because what if I get in another bad situation, right? And so some of the the healing is like first if if someone has that kind of traumatic history is to complete the trauma cycle, right? Like, oh, coming back to the body. Okay. 
What's happening in my body? Where can I feel the ground? Can I feel my breath? All right. Can I notice my environment? All right. With more awareness, what is the appropriate response here? So that's one piece of the work. The other piece of the work is sometimes what's arising isn't a trauma response. It's something a little bit less. It's like a pattern we learned earlier on right, around uh, how how boundaries are supposed to be made. Maybe we come from a family where boundaries are really porous, but we don't actually know how to do it. So then when someone is saying inappropriate things to us, or when something goes down at the workplace that's like not cool, because we haven't learned how to assert a boundary or to, to step forward with our full dignity, then we lose that in that moment. And so the other piece of this is like, okay, well, how do I walk with my boundaries and with connection to my dignity and with connection to my belonging? And how do I practice keeping, maintaining connection with that, even when I'm under pressure, even when the world is telling me things about myself that aren't true? How do I meet that moment in a way that holds my humanity intact, right? Obviously, this is really difficult work to do. And it's not work that we're going to get. We're just going to do it and get it. it. It takes repetitions. And the first time, the first times we start to do this, it, feel, it can feel very scary. It can feel very uncertain. It can feel like maybe we're doing the wrong thing. And that's why it's really helpful to work with a coach or work with somebody who can help you hold the bigger picture as you're stepping in to new practices. So I guess the the final thing I'll say, I don't remember what I was going to say, but it is that the work that I'm supporting people with is how do we within ourselves be the, the caretakers of our well-being even when we're in a society that is actively challenging our ability to do so? And how can, when we bravely and courageously make this uh, the place that we move from and uh, the values that we hold, how does this have an impact of supporting other marginalized bodies to do the same thing? And when we feel, when we're when we're in a collective where that's happening, we are strengthened. And that's where I think a larger systemic change can happen from. Just going out and trying to change a system on our own isn't going to be fruitful. It's too much for one body to take on. But when we're in relationship with others who are similarly committed and acting from that same place, then we are fortified and there is more possibility for larger systemic change. You need more bodies to enact uh, a larger structural shift. And I guess that's a colonial construct for self-help. Usually self-help approaches are individualized in Western societies and people end up feeling really alone. But of course, if you need to address systemic issues, you cannot be doing it by yourself. So I really like how you emphasize on the collective. That is definitely a part of my decolonizing process and my decolonizing journey. Realizing that, you know, I'm not by myself. I've always been part of a community. 
it's not just restricted to who shares my ancestry, who is from my country. It extends well beyond that. So I like how you emphasize on community. That's something people really need to need to kind of hone in on. Totally. And I think, well, one of the patterns I've seen is that women of color can take on too much. We try to take on an entire system or we try to take on an entire workplace culture. This isn't right. And I don't want other people to have to deal with this. So I'm going to be the one. And one of the things that I love about somatic work is that it really shows us that our bodies, our individual bodies can only hold so much, right? Like we're not going to process in our own individual body, the horror of slavery or the horror of genocide or the horror of displacement. There's no way that one body can reconcile that. And yet when we see this happening in our world, we can fall into depression, we can feel ineffective, we can feel like we're not doing enough because we, part of the capitalistic model is a priority of the individual over everything else. And so we can feel this undue burden to be the one to shift these huge systemic issues when really uh, what our environment is calling for is, I believe, first like a healing and stabilization within ourselves, and then being with others who are in that work as well and moving from that place as well to enact change in a sustainable and sane way. When I started realizing that, you know, there's something missing from my body, there's something disconnected. I soon realized, so talking to my parents and kind of hearing how the cultures have kind of shifted. So I'm from India, for example, and India has experienced a major cultural shift. It has become a country which is really modernized. A lot of people, for example, in India don't even like to speak their native language while they're still living there uh, because they feel as if being more Western will just help them be better human beings. So kind of dehumanizing themselves and their own communities without even realizing it. So I'm very happy that immigration has granted me the opportunity to kind of understand that. I guess distance does help you kind of step back and see what are the issues going on in your own communities. But it's always been in my mind, where did this start? And a lot of people say, well, you can't really blame colonization all the time. That happened ages ago. But the effects of colonization are still in my country, are still in the minds, the bodies, the spirits of my people. And unfortunately, it's not just limited to Indians, um, it's in so many people of color. They still perceive, for example, Eurocentric beauty to be the highest standard. They still perceive white bodies to be superior. So where do we start in realizing that, yes, we are speaking the language, for example, English, we're speaking that language that is from colonial times and, you know, the sort of clothes that we wear, the lifestyles we have. Yes, they are part of that system that we're fighting against. How do you make people realize that it's okay to be in this environment? It's okay to kind of use the resources of this environment, this land, and at the same time, hold people accountable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is such a, this is such a, a complex question. 
You know, one of the things that Frantz Fanon says is that a colonized people must adopt the standards of their colonizer in order to survive, right? So the more Eurocentric we can become in our features, right? Lightening our skin, straightening our hair, wearing blue contacts, speaking uh, the language, right? The closer we get to and on one level, it's about power, but on another level, it's all, it's about humanity. So the, the more human we become, the closer we are to the Euro lens. And so from that perspective, I can't blame my fellow black and brown bodies when they are doing everything they can to protect their humanity and to protect the humanity of their children, right? This is how, you know, we lose native tongues, how we lose foods, how we lose uh, rituals because they aren't passed down because teaching our children these ways could make them less, less in the eyes of those who hold power. So I think one of the, the things that I, I try to do in my work is to share the history of how we got where we we are and to kind of, well, I think when we offer the history, it lends itself to compassion, compassion for ourselves in the ways that we may have tried to Eurocise ourselves and compassion for others who maybe don't know the history and are in that in a very real way. And your question is like, how do we how do we survive inside of white supremacy? The way I'm interpreting it is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is how do we survive in white supremacy without fully abandoning or or fully drinking the Kool-Aid? Like, how do we still hold reverence and respect for our ancestral traditions and yet live in a society in which there's not room or that's not honored or respected. Yeah. Well, in many ways, this is the work, right? I think because culturally and because the program, as I like to call it, really loves when bodies of color self-flagellate. It really loves when we feel shame, when we feel not enough, when we feel like we're not doing a good enough job. And in fact, I would say that if there were a message to share with all the women of color that may be listening to this, it is you are enough and you are doing a great job. So we can feel this tension of like, I have to pay the bills. I have to, you know, maybe go to a job that I don't love. I have to deal with a boss who does not hold values that I, that I respect. And at the same time, I also really want to honor and make space for where I come from, you know, and I think this is where I like to approach this work from a place of pleasure because we can get into this either or thinking where it's like, either I'm going to just abide in the, the system as it is, or I'm going to completely, or I'm going to be completely against that and, and be live in the woods and have a completely different life. Right. And I think when we're in that kind of mindset, we're, we're getting in trouble. 
because we don't live in an either or world. We live in a both and kind of world. And so how do we hold that both and like the both and is in our in our world right now, like there's so much suffering, there's so much violence, there's so much hate and misunderstanding. And at the same time, there's so much beauty and there's so much love and there's so much creativity and there's so much possibility. So how do we hold that complexity in our individual bodies? And the pathway toward pleasure, and this is the pathway, I think, for somatic work and also for reconnecting with um, our decolonial practices, is like, what can I move toward that feels good? right? What can I move toward? It's like, when I start to get, start to listen to my body, what can I move toward that, that would feel good to what's happening from the neck down? Because the head, that's a whole other conversation. The head is going to probably say, "Uh Oh, no, we can't do this. Right. So with time, it, it comes along, but what would feel good from the neck down? And so what I see in a lot of indigenous cultures is a, a, a cycle of, or a way of living that is in connection with the natural cycle of nature and the environment. And in that natural cycle, there is there are periods of activity and growth and expansion, and then there are periods of rest and things being dormant and things being quiet. I think that we tend toward because of capitalism, always being in this growth, always being in this extension, always feeling like we need to be striving. And so when we start to listen to, okay, what would feel good from the the neck down? It may be, how can I invite a little bit more pause? How can I invite a little bit more rest? How can I invite a little bit more space? Even if my head is like, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, no, this, this is all gonna, right? Which we could talk about later if you want to. But how can we start to honor what the body is asking for? And when we do that, not only are we confronting the systems that we live in, but we're also honoring the knowing that comes, that's in our bodies, that comes from our mother's, 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 mother. And and that's what I love about coming at decolonial work from an embodied perspective, because I think we can get really heady about decolonization. And there's a place for that for sure, right? It's really important to understand how these systems work and you know what, what's actually happening on a psychological level for sure. And for people whose histories have been erased, for people who, who may not know their ancestors that far back, it can feel like a really insurmountable challenge to try to reconnect with our ancestral ways through research and books because There's a lot of unknowns, right? And so what gives me comfort is to know that my body knows the way. And how my body tells me is through pleasure. So that, and and that accessing of pleasure or that accessing of what my body, and this is one of the meditations we do in my work is like, what does my body want? Can I give it that? That's a meditation moment by moment. What does my body want? Can I give it that? What does my body want? Can I give it that? We build that muscle and that listening and following, not only is it, does it confront these systems, but it gives us more resilience and it gives us more space to be in a society that is so complex. I really like 
how obviously somatics is very body centric. That's something that you don't really get to see. Again, looking back to the sort of self-help and self-love advice you get to see on um, social media, through books, is very much fixated on the mind and not so much on the body. I kind of wonder if this is a product of the sort of broken understanding by the dominant culture of the spiritual and the material being connected. Like you said, a lot of indigenous cultures, what they see out in nature and in the world, they try to replicate that into taking care of themselves and their communities, which includes, of course, bodies. Do you think that if we tend to this rupture between our spiritual and material selves, it will help us to not only be in tune with our spiritual selves, but also with our bodies, which we are often completely ignoring? Totally. Yeah, great question. So one of the things I love about somatics is that the word soma, which I think is a Greek root word, points to the living organism in its wholeness the living organism, the whole, the whole, the whole of our being. And right now I think somatics is understood as the body and that's cool. The body is part of it for sure, but the living organism and our wholeness, it's not just, it's not, we're not attending just to the body, but we're also attending to our thinking body, our spiritual body, our emotional body, our creative body, our feeling body, right? All these aspects of our humanity are what are being listened to and followed and integrated in this work. Because what the path of the work or the fruition of the work is like, how, how do we live into our full humanity, right? What does it actually mean to be embodied right now? And how do we attend to every layer of what that is so that not only are we in our fullest expression and our fullest gifts and our fullest contribution, but we're uh, creating a, a world where that is the baseline for creating from and for understanding and for visioning and for, you know, the ways that we are organizing our, our systemic structures. So that is what, what we're up to in this work. So very much so our spiritual body comes in to a somatic practice in a very big way. Our interconnected, our interrelational body comes into somatic practice. Our ancestral body comes in. Our, uh, the body that's feeling for or visioning for the future, that body comes in as well. And then we look at all of those aspects of ourself and we're holding that awareness as we move toward what matters to us. It's like, how as I move toward this job search, do I still get to be listening to spirit and ancestors and what my environment is communicating with me, right? And what I'm feeling is possible for my future. How do all those aspects, how do I take care of being um, attuned to and listening to all those aspects as I move toward, you know, whatever is next for us? And it's like, how, how did we get so disconnected? Well, there's so many theories on this, but I see, and this might be somewhat controversial statement, but it's how, how I see it. I see that the mind has, in many of our bodies operates as a power over system. 
And it's a power over system. It's, it's a power over our body. It's a power over, for some folks, our spiritual knowing. It's a power over our ancestral knowing. The, the mind likes to be driving the ship. And the mind, many of our minds, were put in the position of being in a power over to these other ways of knowing by how we were trained in school right? By how we're affirmed in this society. And where does that come from? Well, if you look, we can look in history and it's like when we see the atrocities that were enacted on native populations by Europeans, they, you know, and they were able to use spirituality to justify some of their means. But again, like true spirituality, there had to be a disconnect there. And what what was put in the place on the highest altar? Power, right? What made sense to the mind through this mechanism of receiving power? It's like, well, we're going to diminish and squash these people. And I'm not going to feel this because we need their gold or we need their land or we need them to work for us, you know, so that that thinking self became the dominant way in which uh, the colonizer was able to disconnect from the atrocities that they were committing. And then, of course, that ethos gets taught to subsequent generations. Why? To perpetuate the systems that were created. Because as soon as we bring other parts of ourselves into the conversation, we can no longer abide in the systems that we've created. They don't work. We, uh, you know, and many of us see that the most marginalized bodies see that. Mm. I think that's very, a very powerful take to it. Kind of relying on your intuition. You know, when people say, listen to your heart over your mind, listen to your gut feeling, your intuition, again, emphasized in indigenous cultures and communities. Like you said, feeling what is in your body. That is not something that we get to learn when we grow up when you know we're part of these western cultures so i think that's that's really powerful to give your mind a rest for a while and actually understand that your spirit self and your material self your body we are already carrying so much wisdom and knowledge and we just need time for it to come out that is amazing and that is definitely part of my current awakening and kind of understanding that i might be a 21 year old human being, but I'm much older than that. My wisdom is much greater than that. That's exactly right. Totally. And what if you had heard that through grade school and through, right? Like what if, what if we were teaching that right away? What a different world we would have. And it's often the most sensitive bodies, the ones who can actually make it work in the society that we have who get told that they're deficient. You're feeling a lot of the bullshit and then you become the problem because you can't turn off what you're feeling, right? And I'm like, no, 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 no. These bodies are the canaries in the coal mine. These are the bodies that we should be not only listening to, but who should be designing another way in which we can relate. And I just want to say, this isn't to say that the mind is bad, right? Like we need our minds and I love my mind, right? Like I wouldn't be able to speak to you today if I didn't have this working for me, 
but it's about how do we move from a power over to a power with inside ourselves, right? Like we see these power over structures in our world, and yet we don't actually see how that is living in us. And one of the ways it lives in us is that the mind is like, I'm going to tell you what to do. And if you don't do what I say, then, you know, you're going to get in big trouble or you're going to fail or whatever. And it's like, no, the mind wants to design to share power with the body. And so when we're actually able to enter into a power with relationship between our mind, our ancestors, our internal knowing, our interconnection, right? When all of those things are informing us, we are so powerful because nobody's walking like that, right? There's a few people, right? And when we meet them, we're like, wow. You're so clear. You're so grounded. You're so confident. You're so wise. And it's like, hey, they just practice something, really letting themselves, all their antenna, be part of the conversation and then working together. And the mind will learn how to share power. It will initially revolt. It'll be like a wild horse and you're trying to put a saddle on it. And it's like, no, 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 no. Right? Like the first time you sit down to meditate, the first time you try to just feel your breath, right? The first time you step into a new practice that's different from what you habitually have done. The mind is like, no. But with time, the more we practice it, the more familiar it becomes. And then they learn how to work together. So you mentioned pleasure-centric approaches that you take. On your website, you mentioned that you have practices such as interplay and pleasure activism. Is that incorporated into your work? And is that what you were pointing towards? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that especially when you're working, doing anything with the body, you actually have to enter in. Well, I won't say have to, but because bridging the gap between the mind and the body for many bodies is this wide chasm. And it can feel like walking across this drawbridge with this vast expanse, like in the wind and the rain. It can feel like no way, because for many bodies, like we may not have any connection to what's happening down here, or we may feel down here and feel shame. We don't like how our bodies look, or it brings up memories, right, of like things that have happened to our bodies. And so if we try to like bridge that gap, just by saying like, okay, do it, go now. Then many people, many bodies are going to be like, "Mm, I don't think so. Not today. Maybe it'll be, maybe it'll be sunnier tomorrow. I'll try tomorrow. And so rather than like taking that journey from just sheer will or sheer, like, you know, pressuring of ourselves, is there another way in? Is there another way to get down into the body? And one of the most, I would say the easiest way to access that space is through play, through pleasure. How did we play as children, right? And when we're in a place of play, there's a sense of often relaxation, creativity, opening up. Uh, There's a generative quality, right? And so our body isn't like clamped down in fear. It's like, ooh, what, what am I going to, ooh, what's going to happen now, right? And then from that place, we're able to feel our, our body. 
if we're clamped down, it's like, okay, feel what's happening in your body. Then it'd be like, Ooh, I just feel tense. Right. Ooh, just feel scared. And so from that place of like play and pleasure and enjoyment, um, one of the things the interplay says is that the work is sneaky deep. So it feels like, oh, we're just having a good time. And then you're like, wait, oh, so this is why I'm always leading and not following. I feel like I have to lead. Oh, where did I learn that? Right. And so when when then we start to build more of a relationship with our body and then from that place, the, the, the bridge isn't, isn't as scary. We're like, oh, I know it's over there. Ah, yeah, I, I know it seems scary, but like I've been over there and it's actually, it's kind of nice. So that's the, the approach. And, and the other thing, and this is something I learned from um, Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism, which has this beautiful essay from Audre Lorde, Uses of the Erotic. And I think it's, and it speaks to um, what I was saying earlier about uh, listening to the canaries in the coal mine, right? So the canary was the first one to say, danger, this is dangerous, right? And so sensitive BIPOC bodies are like the canary in the coal mine. We're like, uh-oh, this shit is bad. Like, we need to get out of here. And then, you know, bodies that can't feel it are like, nope, we're just going to keep moving ahead. Don't see, you know, all good, right? And then we die. And then it's not long before they die too, right? <laughs> Shucks. Anyway, so Audrey Lord said, you know, when we have experienced, and this is a paraphrase because I don't remember the exact quote, but it's essentially like when our bodies have experienced a certain level of pleasure or a certain level of expression or a certain level of dignity, out of self-respect, we can require no less than that. Once you've seen, once your body has seen what it feels like to be safe, to have your voice respected and heard, to have the space you need to take rest, to have the space you need to be creative. Once you've really been able to like experience that, you're much less willing to give it up. You're like, nope, this isn't, that's not worth it, right? Uh, so with decolonizing the body, some of our bodies have never experienced what it's like to make a boundary and be and to stand in that with confidence, even when the world around us is like, no, you can't do that, right? When we've never experienced what it's like to rest. We've never experienced what it's like to start every morning in ritual. But when we taste that and we see what that does for our well-being, the pleasure that that gives us the resilience that gives us, then we're much less willing to accept less than that. We're like, no, that doesn't work for me. Oh, you want to do it at that time? Sorry, I, I'm not free, right? So it's sort of like a reversal to the trauma defense mechanism that you talked about at the start. You know, our bodies kind of are like memory foam. We remember the good, the extremely good and the extremely bad unfortunately we kind of cling on to both but you know if we focus on the positives what have we learned from the bad and now that we know how we feel good then we can obviously try to channelize our energy into those areas but at the same time learn from the things that have induced traumas in our bodies that's right that full cycle 
That's right. It's the full cycle. Exactly. That's exactly right. We hold both of those things. Kelsey, when I first reached out to you, I was really fascinated about the Decolonizing a Body program. For women of color that are listening, that would be interested in joining, could you kind of give us a brief introduction to, you know, what can they expect out of the seven weeks with you? Yeah, for sure. So it's seven weeks of doing this work, decolonizing the body uh, that integrates body practices as well as creative practices like poetry and dance and music and song. And we're doing this in community around specific themes. So each week is a different theme. And some of the things we touch on are the things that I talked about here. What does it feel like to slow down, right? So we do work around slowing down. We do work around creating a ritual together. We do work around practicing what it feels like to to really know what a yes feels like, to know what a no feels like, and to know what a maybe feels like in our body. Because our our minds can talk us into a lot of different truths, but our body tells us what's happening, right? And so how do we start to be in conversation with that around our boundaries? Uh, How do we let ourselves receive and feel what can come up when we let in praise, acknowledgement, support from someone else, right? And basically it's like, what I hope that women get out of the, the program is that they can do this, that we can, like sometimes it feels like I'm just bad at boundaries or I'm, I'm just, I, I, I'm just bad at, at taking rest. And it's like, no, 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 no. With support, you can get this into your body, right? You can get, you can feel what it's like in your body to organize your soma in such a way where this is possible for you. And then you can take this into your life and your work and your relationships. And there's something really sweet about doing this with a collective. So we'll often, some women like to work with a buddy. So, you know, there's that option, but to be supported and in conversation with others around this work. And also just to have space to talk about the things that we don't often get to talk about. Where do we get to talk about being racialized or being sexualized and the impacts that's had and just have the space to tell our stories and be heard about that. I mean, there's something about just the witnessing of that that is can be very powerful for people. So that's what the program is. I, I will offer it in 2022. I'm not sure when. So we're, we're actually finishing up the last session this month. So, but there will be another one. So stay tuned. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today, Kelsey. Again, I'm going to reiterate it. The timing of this conversation was so important for me. When I finally came to this realization that I do need to not only decolonize my spirit, my soul, but also my mind and my body at the same time. And I think a lot of women will find this conversation so liberating, especially those that are kind of struggling to do the same as we have already. If you could give some advice to the women of the diaspora who are struggling still to be in tune with their bodies, to connect with their bodies, whilst living so far away from their homelands. If you could give some advice to those women. 
what is the best place to start this lifelong journey of decolonizing the body? Yeah, yeah, so good. Uh, well, I would like to say a couple things. The first is that I hope that women of color, especially those who are awake to the ways that they're impacted by the society that we're living in and are feeling the grief and sorrow around that, know that they're not alone. Even if we're not in community or even if we're not in spaces where we can talk about, you know, the ways in which we've been taught to feel deficient or the ways we've been taught to feel shame or feel that we're not enough or the stress that we feel from working all the time. So that's the first is like, you're not alone. We're here. The other thing I would say is that, or what I would hope is that it's like, where can you be really, really kind and gentle with yourself? And is there a way in which you can make that a regular practice? And it could look so many ways. It could be like, I'm going to take a walk once a week, just me, no phone, no kids, just me getting outside. Or I'm going to let myself eat something like really delicious that feels not something that I should have, but I want it. I'm going to let myself just sit and enjoy that. I'm going to buy myself a really pretty scarf. And every time I wear it, I'm going to remind myself that I love myself, right? So what is just one small thing you can do that would be really kind and loving to yourself? And then can you make that a practice? That would be the place to start. Kind, loving practice. Thank you for listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast. If this episode resonated with you, please support the podcast by giving a rating on whichever podcast platform you use and share the podcast within your community to extend listenership to those who are also connect to the content. Visit mindfuloveverything.com for all episode resources, show notes and transcripts.